Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. Supreme Court hears challenges to President Joe Biden's authority to cancel federal student loans because of the COVID-19 national emergency. The president wanted $10,000 in loan forgiveness per borrower for those who make under $125,000 a year, $20,000 forgiven for those who took out Pell Grants. Coming up, we'll hear some of the oral argument in today's Supreme Court cases and talk about them with Washington Post higher education reporter Daniel Douglas Gabriel. President Joe Biden nominating Deputy Labor Secretary Julie Sue to be secretary to replace departing Secretary Marty Walsh. Republican-led House passing a bill to block a Labor Department regulation that allows retirement plans to consider, when investing, environmental, social, and corporate governance issues, or ESG. President Biden is in Virginia Beach, Virginia today, talking about federal health care spending, contrasting his budget priorities with congressional Republicans. EPA Administrator Michael Regan back for a third time in East Palestine, Ohio, where the cleanup and recovery goes on from a toxic chemical spill from a train derailment. The EPA Administrator meeting with students at the high school. House Republican leadership responding to questions about Speaker Kevin McCarthy giving Fox News exclusive access to police video from the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. And a House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on the Chinese Communist Party questions today to a State Department official about the origins of COVID-19. Washington Post national higher education reporter Daniel Douglas Gabriel has been covering today's Supreme Court oral arguments in the cases challenging President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. She joins us now on the phone. Thank you so much. The Washington Post has this summary. Several conservative justices on Tuesday questioned the power of the Biden administration to wipe out nearly half a trillion dollars in student loan debt without direct authorization from Congress. And the court's liberal justices expressed skepticism over whether the six Republican-led states that brought the first case are specifically harmed by President Biden's program, which they must be in order to have legal grounds to stop it. Can you expand on that? What did you hear today? So I think, you know, what I heard was a lot of questioning of whether either of the plaintiffs in these two cases have standing. Essentially, the the first bar that you have to cross, uh, the first hurdle you have to, to call, climb uh, in order to even hear the merits of the case. And with standing, of course, it is proving that you will uh, endure specific direct harm by the policy that's being enacted. And as you mentioned, the liberal justices just weren't really buying it. And I think what, what a lot of folks who were watching this today were interested in, in the fact that Justice Barrett seemed to be questioning the issue of standing as well, uh, which makes you know some folks hope that perhaps that she will join with the liberals in uh, deciding to throw out these cases because neither of these people have standing. However, there was a more unity among the conservatives about the issue of the president's authority to essentially unilaterally make a, such a sweeping policy without congressional input. The fact that this program is estimated to cost over $400 billion uh, over 10 years is, you know, understandably considered a significant economic impact and really kind of gets to questions about Congress's authority to appropriate federal funding. And this kind of stepping around Congress, really undermining that authority. 
mentioned that the first case involves those Republican-led states bringing the case. Who were who the plaintiffs in the second case? The plaintiffs in the second case are two borrowers, one who wouldn't receive the full $20,000 in student loan relief because he didn't have a federal Pell Grant. This is a form of financial aid for lower-income students. So he would only receive 10000 And the other borrower in the case would be completely excluded from the program because she has what's known as Pell Loans. This is a defunct um, federal loan program and some of the loans were uh, given to private lenders or held by private lenders. And as a result, those loans don't qualify for this program. Now, up until September, the Education Department had allowed borrowers to consolidate those commercial fell loans into d- the direct loan program to allow them to take part in this relief program. But in a move that many people saw as an effort to really head off legal challenges, like the ones that are being brought by the state, Um, the department changed course and said that those particular loans would not be included in this program, even if you were to consolidate. We're talking with Daniel Douglas Gabriel from The Washington Post. The White House was asked today whether they should have brought forth this federal student loan forgiveness program earlier in the Biden administration. It might have made the case stronger before the Supreme Court today. Why is that? Well, I mean, the, this policy is largely based around the idea that the national emergency from the pandemic created this kind of economic turmoil that may leave lots of borrowers in a worse off position than before the pandemic. And I think a lot of um, folks who are, who are paying attention to this case are saying, well, there was a stronger argument for that earlier on in the pandemic when we really were seeing the economy rocked by um, the lockdown, by all of just the economic turmoil. But the administration is saying, you know, that hasn't really ended for many, many borrowers. Their ability to fully repay their loans and comfortably do so without the threat of falling into delinquency or default hasn't ended. And so even if we are in a better economic position than we were, say, uh, a two years ago or a year ago, these borrowers are still at a higher risk of potentially falling behind on their loans. And a lot of what the administration had done, especially you could see this in their own brief, is look at past instances where borrowers were allowed to go into forbearance because of natural disasters. And when those borrowers were taken out of forbearances, a lot of them uh, defaulted on their loans in high numbers. And that's the fear about what will happen when this payment pause that was imposed because of the pandemic ends sometime this year. So the president put forth his plan and then there were the lawsuits. Now it's before the Supreme Court. What's the status of the program with the Education Department right now? I guess guess it's frozen, right? Yes, it's on pause. The Education Department is no longer accepting applications before uh, that application portal shut down. About 26 million people applied Uh, About, I think, 16 million of those applications were approved by the department and just kind of waiting to see how the courts were going to rule before the money would be discharged one way or the other. But it's been on hold for several months now. And when might we get a decision from the Supreme Court? At least by June. But some folks are thinking perhaps a little earlier than that because it's an expedited case. These cases have been expedited 
Um, but we're it's on it's uncertain as for now. But definitely before the end of June, which is when the calendar ends, and certainly there is a good chance that would maybe sooner than that because these are expedited cases. Daniel Douglas Gabriel is Washington Post national higher education reporter. You can find her stories at WashingtonPost.com and on Twitter at Danny Doug Post. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now some of today's Supreme Court oral argument. This is from the first case, Biden v. Nebraska. Chief Justice John Roberts questioning the U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger about whether the 2003 law known as the HEROES Act gives the president and education secretary the power to grant federal student loan forgiveness. In an opinion we had a few years ago uh, by Justice Scalia, he talked about what what the word modify means. And uh, he said modified, in our view, connotes moderate change. He said it might be good English to say that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility, but only because there's a figure of speech called understatement and a literary device known as sarcasm. We're talking about half a trillion dollars uh, and 43 million Americans. How does that fit under the normal understanding of modifying? So, of course, I recognize that in MCI, Justice Scalia's opinion adopted a narrower understanding of that term, but I don't read that opinion to set forth a universal meaning of modify, no matter the statutory context. And here, of course, we have a broader phrase, waive or modify. It's undisputed, and the states aren't contesting, that the ordinary meaning of waive means to eliminate an obligation in its entirety. And I think if you look at that phrase in the context of the statute, that means that modify has to mean making a change up to the point of wholesale elimination. It would be really strange for Congress to say you can eliminate obligations altogether or tweak them just the littlest bit, but you can't do anything in between. Well, but it's waive particular regulatory or statutory provisions. That's right. That to me suggests a much more focused use of the word. Well, it's waive or modify paired with the authority to do that with respect to any Title IV provision. So I think that 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 is the... It doesn't say waive, modify or waive loan balances. That's true, but it's very clear that under the Title IV provisions that are expressly referenced in the statute, things like repayment obligations, cancellation, discharge are core features of the program and obvious candidates for waiver in a statute, the central purpose of which is to provide debt relief to borrowers. You know, Congress itself has provided for loan discharge and other circumstances in response to borrower hardship. It's included provisions in the Higher Education Act for bankruptcy, for example, or for total disability um, or school closure, other kinds of hardships. And so it couldn't have surprised Congress one bit that in response to hardship posed by a national emergency, the secretary might consider similarly providing discharge if that's what it takes to make sure borrowers don't default. You think because there's a provision to allow waiver when your school closes, that because of that Congress shouldn't have been surprised when half a trillion dollars is wiped off the books? Well, I think it demonstrates that in a statute that's centrally focused on providing financial relief, that that terminology should be given its plain meaning, and Congress could have anticipated that in a particular situation, you might expect that the way that you need to ameliorate the borrower harm is through loan forgiveness. U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger questioned by Chief Justice John Roberts during the oral argument today in the Supreme Court case Biden v. Nebraska challenging President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Arguing on behalf of Nebraska and the other states which sued, Nebraska Solicitor General James Campbell. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson asked him whether one of those states, Missouri, 
has the standing to bring the case, that is, whether the state was economically harmed. Missouri claims it lost revenue for a scholarship fund from the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, one of the largest holders and servicers of student loans in the United States. Contributions to the fund and contributions to the scholarship program are different sides of the same coin. The state has been constantly, throughout the entire time uh, from 2007 till now, has been constantly receiving payments from Mohila, and those payments have taken the form sometime of Lewis and Clark, but more, more often recently it has taken the form of a scholarship contribution. Have you expressed any plans to actually use the fund to pursue projects in the foreseeable future, and if so, what? projects? Uh, At this point, the projects have been put on pause. I see. So we're talking about a fund that hasn't been contributed into because the state has waived the obligation to do so for at least a temporary period of time. And then even if the funds were to go into um, this particular fund, you don't have a set of plans that you are planning to pursue with them. But all that requires is the legislature and the governor to move forward once the money, once the fund has been. Yes, no, I understand. But we're trying to figure out the degree to which the state is injured by the money not being there. And so on the one hand, you know, I hear Justice Sotomayor exploring with you the fact that the state has allowed the money not to be there in the recent past by saying, don't worry, you don't have to put it in there, Mohila. So that seems to be a a sort of strike against the state now saying we're so injured because the money isn't there. And then we have, on top of that, um, your representation here that the state isn't even actively seeking or interested in the money insofar as it's decided that it's going to engage in some sort of project that we need the money for. So I'm just wondering about the speculative, attenuated nature of the harm that you're alleging on the basis of there not being or of the risk that we won't have extra money put into this fund. Your Honor, I, I disagree with, with what you said, that the state has waived the obligation under the fund. What the state has done is it's engaged in a quid pro quo discussion with Mohila, and it has said that in exchange for $65 million in payments to the scholarship fund, it has allowed the, the timeline to be extended. Yes, That's I apologize. I'm just saying the state has not pressed Mohila to put money into the fund. Because it's correct, but because it has been receiving money in another fund. Nebraska Solicitor General James Campbell questioned by Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson in today's case, challenging President Biden's authority and in this case, even standing from the states to to challenge it of the student loan forgiveness program. Mohila is the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority. Missouri claiming it's being economically harmed by the loan forgiveness plan. Find the full audio of the oral argument in this case and the second case argued today about the loan forgiveness program, Department of Education v. Brown at cspan.org. Total running time, three hours and 15 minutes. President Biden today nominating Julie Sue to be Labor Secretary. She would replace Marty Walsh, who is leaving the president's cabinet. Julie Sue is currently Deputy Labor Secretary and former head of California's Labor Department. If confirmed, she would be the first Asian American in the Biden administration cabinet. President Biden in a statement about her nomination calling her a champion for workers. More from the White House Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton speaking with reporters on Air Force One. 
Today, the president announced his intent to nominate Julie Su to serve as secretary of the Department of Labor. Julie is a tested and experienced leader who will continue to build a stronger, more resilient, and more inclusive economy that provides Americans a fair return for their work and an equal chance to get ahead. Julie has spent her entire life fighting to make sure that everyone has a fair shot, that no, no community is overlooked, and that no worker is left behind. Over several decades, Julie led the largest state labor department in the nation, cracked down on wage theft, fought to protect trafficked workers, increased the minimum wage, created good-paying, high-quality jobs, and established and enforced workplace safety standards. Julie is a champion for workers, and she's been a critical partner to Secretary Walsh, Walsh since the early days of this administration. She helped avert a national rail shutdown, improved access to good jobs free from discrimination through the Good Jobs Initiative, and is ensuring that the jobs we create in critical sectors like semiconductor manufacturing, broadband, and healthcare are good-paying, stable, accessible jobs for all. We urge the Senate to take up her nomination quickly so that we can finish the job for America's workers. The White House Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton with reporters flying with the president on Air Force One. Congresswoman Judy Chu, Democrat from California, tweeting, I am elated that President Biden is nominating Julie Sue to be our nation's next labor secretary. She's eminently qualified to lead the department and will successfully deliver results for our workers on day one. Thank you, President Biden, for nominating your first AAPI cabinet secretary. A Washington Examiner story on this ends with this saying that the nomination ends a week-long debate among congressional uh, congressional Democrats on who should be tapped for the high-profile job. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, initially backed Sarah Nelson, the head of the Association of Flight Attendants, for the position and also expressed support for former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had pushed for former Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, Democrat from New York, to be nominated, prompting pushback from some Democrats who called the proposal divisive. From the Washington Examiner, Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, is the ranking Republican on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. He's put out a statement that says Deputy Secretary Sue has a troubling record and is currently overseeing the Department of Labor's development of anti-worker regulations that will dismantle the gig economy. This does not inspire confidence in her ability to hold her current position, let alone be promoted. The HELP Committee should have a full and thorough hearing process to evaluate Julie Sue's nomination. And when that hearing takes place, we will be covering it on the C-SPAN networks. This is Washington Today. House of Representatives today passing a bill to block a Labor Department rule that would allow retirement plans to consider environmental, social, and corporate governance issues, or ESG, in their investment decisions. A Yahoo News article says that the rule covers plans that collectively invest $12 trillion on behalf of more than 150 million people. Some debate on the House floor before the vote. Republican Virginia Fox of North Carolina chairs the Education and Workforce Committee. While my colleagues on the other side of the aisle have argued that the Biden rule is neutral, they have done a poor job of hiding the administration's true intentions. The department issued the rule in response to two executive orders on climate change, and the explanation of the rule is littered with Democrats' preferred political projects, such as labor relations, climate change, and workforce and corporate board diversity. 
Further, DOL officials have repeatedly stated that they will pursue additional actions concerning ESG and retirement plans. The left is using ESG investment criteria as a political tool to cudgel companies into accepting leftist policies. This is how the left always operates. This is just the first step. If we let this continue, the left will use ESG investing to push non-compliant companies out of the marketplace. This is pernicious and it is hypocritical. Congresswoman Virginia Fox, Republican from North Carolina, on the House floor. Opposing the bill, Congresswoman Ilan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota. The investments that we make might have an impact on the rest of the world. Many of us would be outraged if we knew that our investments went towards forced labor activities in China and other parts of the world. And yet this resolution would make it difficult for hardworking Americans to determine what investments are being made in their name. Our constituents deserve the freedom to access this information, to have the right to ensure that their money is being invested in a way that is aligned with their values. So I urge my colleagues to reject this resolution, to protect the rights of Americans, to make financial and moral decisions about the kind of investments that they want their retirement to be made of. Congresswoman Ilan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, debate on the House floor. The House went on to pass this bill by a vote of 216 to 204 party line, with Republicans voting yes and Democrats no. Bill now heads to the Senate. The procedure being used is called the Congressional Review Act, and it allows Congress to vote to stop proposed major regulations within 60 days. But even if today's bill does pass the Senate, it could be vetoed by President Biden. So it would really require a two-thirds vote of the House and Senate to override the veto to block the regulation. Today's House vote below that two-thirds. White House saying on Monday the president would veto this bill. In the statement, it says the rule reflects what successful marketplace investors already know. There is an extensive body of evidence that environmental, social, and governance factors can have material impacts on certain markets, industries, and companies. President Biden today traveling to Virginia Beach, Virginia, to talk about federal health care spending, including for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare and, and Medicare and Medicaid and contrasting that with what he says are the Republican priorities. All this in the context of the expected political fights this year over the federal budget and raising the debt ceiling to avoid a government shutdown and or a default on the national debt. Here's President Biden. You know, the MAGA Republicans in Congress are, uh, do they still want to cut Medicaid? Well, the former Trump budget director, who's now advising them, that is Republicans in the House, on their fiscal strategy, has a plan to slash over $2 trillion for Medicaid. Well, whether it gets passed, that's the plan, okay? He wants to end Medicare expansion under the Affordable Care Act, and then additional deep cuts that could lead to nearly 70 million people losing critical services. Most of them are seniors, people with disabilities, and children. Some could lose their health insurance altogether. Millions of seniors and people with disabilities who depend on Medicaid 
to help pay for their home care, including home health aides, could lose their ability to remain in their homes. And by the way, it saves the government money if they're home and not in a nursing home. And those long waiting lists for home care, which has gone down under the last two years, last five years, 20 percent would likely rise again, and states with no waiting lists would likely have them again. Medicaid also pays for nursing home care for about two-thirds of all Americans who live in nursing homes. Cut Medicaid, and the quality of care in nursing homes goes down because the help goes down. The salaries go down. Access goes down. Rural hospitals across the country that depend on Medicare to cover uncompensated care could close their doors. President Biden in Virginia Beach, Virginia, he plans to release his proposed budget for fiscal year 2024 on March 9th. And he's called on Republicans in Congress to put their spending priorities as well on the table and their proposed cuts. Wall Street today, the Dow down 232, Nasdaq down 11, S&P down 12. U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Regan back in East Palestine, Ohio. Today, his third visit since that freight rail train derailment three and a half weeks ago that led to the massive toxic chemical spill and fire. Today, he highlighted the federal resources available to that community giving an update on hazardous waste cleanup and air and water testing. One of his stops, East Palestine High School, where he took questions from students. How are you guys going to, like, um, help the the small businesses in town that have been affected by the train crash and when they had to close during the evacuation stage? That's a very good question. And after this roundtable here, I am actually going to a local... Um, I think it's a coffee shop. We went to a coffee shop? Sprinkles. Sprinkles. We're going to head over to Sprinkles. There are a couple of uh, small business owners that are going to sit down and we're going to have a conversation. I think I have some ideas that I can take back uh, to the president and to the Small Business Administration and others. But instead of sharing my ideas, I want to hear directly from the small business owners what it is they're looking for, uh, what impacts they've seen, and how uh, the federal government can be as helpful as possible. But I can't stress enough, I've heard it directly from the president himself, and he's said it in his statements on TV. Uh, He is making all federal resources available and all federal programs available, and we want to be sure that that you all get your fair share of what we can provide from a resource standpoint. Mr. Mr. Reagan's got a very busy schedule today, so one last question, and then we'll uh, we'll call it a day. So who who has it? Go ahead. Do you think President Biden is planning on making an appearance? You know, I don't know. Uh, That's the $60,000 question. (laughs) There are a lot of people that get paid a lot of money to try to get that answer. Uh, What I can say is, uh, I can tell you that he has been laser focused on this from the very beginning. And the reason I can confidently say that is because we were here just hours after the train derailed. We've been here since. We've been feeding the White House information uh, multiple times a day. Uh, and he's talking with more cabinet secretaries than just BPA. Um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've uh, promised uh, to the mayor, we've had quite a few conversations, is we recognize that to a certain extent when we come to town, so does the circus. And it can be disruptive. And so I would argue that uh, any of us that visit 
uh, want to be sure that no resources are taken away from the cleanup and all the actions we want to make you all comfortable um, and that he is paying very close attention. Uh, based on the number of hours I'm working and the questions he's hit me with, he is paying very, <laughs> very close attention. The EPA Administrator Michael Regan at East Palestine High School in East Palestine, Ohio, a roundtable with students and teachers. That audio from WKYC-TV. He also went to a new community welcome center in the town. It's going to provide information for residents on uh, any questions they have as they deal with cleanup and uh, after that toxic train derailment. The congressman who represents East Palestine, Ohio, is Republican Bill Johnson. He has been with Administrator Regan and other federal officials the past couple of weeks in that town. Today, the congressman was in Washington, D.C. for work here, but at a news conference, urged President Biden to visit. On February 3rd, a Norfolk Southern train carrying toxic chemicals derailed in the small Appalachian village of East Palestine, changing life as they know it for thousands. The bright spot in all of this is the work of the first responders, the local mayor, and other local officials, and the residents who are determined to get back to normal. But President Biden has been conspicuously silent. Now, my subcommittee, the Environment, Manufacturing, and Critical Materials Subcommittee on Energy and Commerce is going to hold a hearing on the response by the EPA uh, on March 28th. So I'm looking forward to that. But my message this morning is for President Biden. Mr. President, it's past time for you to make the short trip to East Palestine and show up for the 5,000 Americans who call that little small Appalachian village home. You pride yourself on your Lunch Bucket Joe nickname and tout your blue-collar Scranton, Pennsylvania roots. But, Mr. President, there is nowhere more blue-collar than Northeast Ohio, and no people more deserving of hearing directly from their president right now than the residents of East Palestine. They want comfort. They want to know you care. And they want commitment. They want your assurance that the federal government will see this cleanup through long after the cameras go away. Mr. President, I urge you to show the residents of East Palestine the same respect, the same courtesy, the same love I'm sure you would have shown the residents of a New York or San Francisco had the derailment and chemical spill happened there. Congressman Bill Johnson, Republican from Ohio, a news conference today in Washington, D.C. with other House Republican leaders. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you get your podcasts. Emotional emotional testimony today before the U.S. Homeland Security Committee from Rebecca Kiesling of Michigan her two young sons dying from fentanyl poisoning. She urged lawmakers to act to stop the flow of illegal drugs across the U.S.-Mexico border, saying, I don't use the term drug overdose because this was not an overdose. This was a murder. This is a war. Act like it. Do something. This should not be politicized. It's not about race. Fentanyl doesn't care about race. You see... 
You talk about welcoming those crossing our border, seeking protection. You're welcoming drug dealers across our border. You're giving them protection. You're not protecting our children. I'm in support groups on Facebook where there's thousands of parents who have lost their children. Every day, faces are added. It's dehumanizing. It's demoralizing. There's parents who are, um, they paint the chairs purple, and they kind of make shrines for their children. And I see those purple chairs because purple is the, um, you know, color for a, a drug death. And I don't use the term drug overdose because this was not an overdose. This was murder. My children got fake Percocets that were fentanyl. There was no Percocet in it at all. And it's a homicide, not overdose. But they have these purple chairs. And I saw that and I thought, I don't ever want to have purple chairs. I don't need a reminder. I don't want to remember my sons for how they died. I want to remember them for how they lived. But I'm here testifying today because there are other people who need to remember. I don't need a purple chair in my house. Congress needs a purple chair. The White House needs a purple chair to never forget about all those who are being slaughtered. This is a war. Act like it. Do something. Rebecca Kiesling witnessed today before the House Homeland Security Committee hearing testimony about immigration and border issues. You can find the full hearing at our website, cspan.org. From CNN, Speaker Kevin McCarthy faced questions from his leadership team Monday night over his plans to publicly release security footage from the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, multiple sources told CNN, a process that he said could take some time to disseminate widely, even as Fox News host Tucker Carlson has had an early glimpse. While GOP leaders are supportive of the move to release the footage, which was one of the many concessions Speaker McCarthy made in his bid to become Speaker, some lawmakers in the closed-door leadership meeting asked whether sensitive security protocols or certain evacuation routes would be exposed by taking that step. Other questioned how long the footage is going to be dragged out in the press, with some lawmakers concerned about the optics of appearing to try to downplay a deadly insurrection in the U.S. Capitol. That story from CNN. The House Majority Whip Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, was asked about this today at a news conference. Uh, in two parts, first for you and then for Chairman Gallagher. The first would be on the release of the January 6th tapes. I know that's something that you talked about in today's meeting and yesterday with Speaker McCarthy as well. Is there concern, as much as there's a desire for transparency around this, around security implications of just releasing this footage wholesale? Well, of course, if you watch what the January 6th committee did under Speaker Pelosi, they actually released a lot of video that was very sensitive. I mean, they literally released video of Vice President Pence exiting the Capitol, showing the route that he takes. Uh, I didn't hear a lot of concern about that back then. We were concerned how selective they were. But ultimately, Speaker McCarthy has talked about going through, and then what gets released is going to obviously be scrutinized to make sure that you're not uh, exposing any sensitive information that hasn't, by the way, already been exposed. What Speaker Pelosi did was expose a lot of sensitive information, including the what was an undisclosed location where the leadership of both parties went after uh, her, her daughter was videoing uh, inside of that that military base, which wasn't supposed to happen. So just, to, just a quick follow on that. When you say like it's going to be scrutinized for that footage, 
is, does that mean that the Tucker show is like in contact with Capitol Police? Because I know that's how the January 6th committee did it. Is they at least told them like, are you good if, if we show it? I, well, they, they released a lot of stuff that probably wouldn't be good uh, for Capitol Police, but ultimately, you know, exposing, like I said, the vice president's full route uh, leader at the time, McCarthy's full route uh, from his office to, to exiting the building. So I'm not sure if that was scrutinized, but clearly uh, what Speaker McCarthy's talked about is he wants transparency, but obviously they're going to look to make sure that no additional things that have already not been released, uh, the, the sensitive information that Speaker Pelosi released. Oh, and did you have something for Gallagher? I, I did. I, I, I can ask you after that. All right. Um, can you talk, uh, I guess, more broadly about your thinking in releasing the tapes, and then if you would consider releasing them broadly to all media? Yeah, and Speaker McCarthy has talked about that, is that it will be ultimately released uh, to all media, and, you know, that's a process that's ongoing right now. Congressman Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, is the House Majority Whip, getting reporters' questions at a news conference today. The House Administration Committee Chair, Barry Loudermilk, Loudermilk, Republican from Georgia, telling CBS News that Fox News host Tucker Carlson's staff was allowed to view but not record portions of the over 40,000 hours of police videos from the attack on the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021, and They had the opportunity to request copies of some clips. The congressman saying the clips will not include anything sensitive or classified, such as escape routes. He said, quote, we don't want al-Qaeda to know certain things. Democratic leaders in the House and Senate have criticized Speaker McCarthy's move. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, asked about that today. Leader Schumer, would you consider releasing the footage from January 6th to media, considering the fact that Look, I think what McCarthy did was despicable. It damaged our security and um, certainly is something, you know, when he listens to a small group at the MAGA right, he's going to run into trouble himself. As for releasing it, um, security has to be the number one concern. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer with reporters. Rolling Stone reporting that on Monday, MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell, close Donald Trump associate, who has been one of the largest financial backers of the election denialism movement since late 2020, told Rolling Stone he's now working with two attorneys to file a lawsuit against Speaker McCarthy. As soon as within the next couple of days, Mike Lindell said he and his legal team have drafted a suit arguing his streaming program, Lindell TV, is being injured and discriminated against by not enjoying equal access to the unreleased January 6th trove. That from Rolling Stone. You're listening to Washington Today. A Chinese state-run newspaper, writes CNBC, issued a warning to Tesla CEO Elon Musk after he shared reporting on the U.S. Department of Energy's low-confidence assessment that the global COVID pandemic originated in a Wuhan laboratory. CNBC's Eunice Yoon reported Tuesday morning on the warning from the social media pages of Global Times, the English-language subsidiary of the CCP-controlled People's Daily. Global Times warned Elon Musk he could be breaking the pot of China after the Tesla and Twitter CEO responded to tweets that asserted the COVID pandemic originated in a Wuhan research lab. The saying is akin to the idiom to bite the hand that feeds you. Yunus Yun reported Tesla has an expansive factory campus in Shanghai and China is the electric vehicle manufacturer's second largest market. The issue of COVID-19 origins raised today by Congressman Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania, at a Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on Capitol Hill. 
He was questioning Assistant Secretary of State Daniel Crittenbrink. Americans across the country were ridiculed and vilified for having a difference of opinion. So with all due respect, sir, what facts do you have? Do you have the pangolin where the virus jumped from the pangolin to a, to a human? Do you have it? What facts do you have? Do you have any facts whatsoever to support your claim that the virus occurred in the wet market as opposed to the Wuhan lab? Any? Well, Congressman, again, I'll state, if you look at what uh, elements of the U.S. intelligence community have said, some have pointed to say they come down on the question that uh, it looks like it was naturally occurring. Some have come down uh, on the other side of that. Some have said we don't have enough evidence to judge. Again, I will say in conclusion, the intelligence community uh, does not have a definitive answer on the COVID origin question. President Biden has directed from the beginning of this administration to take all necessary steps, uh, including uh, all elements of our intelligence community to get to the bottom of it. But the, the, the okay, candidate assessment- Okay, fair enough. If there yes, are sir. difference of opinions, then what authority does the State Department or this government have to refute the opinions based on facts that we do know? Because there are no facts at all that it occurred in a wet market. There are wet market outside of Wuhan, right? There, there are zero. I, we all know that, right? But there are, there's plenty of circumstantial evidence, if not, if not more, because a bunch of it was destroyed. We know they destroyed the samples in the lab, right, so that nobody could see them. But if, it's, but if that's the case, will the State Department at least acknowledge, acknowledge that they were wrong and apologize to the millions upon millions of Americans that they, that they disparage for their opinions based on what they know happened in 2019 in the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Will the State Department acknowledge it and apologize? Will they ever do it? Congressman, what I will acknowledge and commit to is to doing what the President has said, that we'll use uh, all elements, including in the IC, to get to the bottom of this. But as we and stand right now, the there is not a definitive answer that has emerged Mr. from the Secretary, intelligence Secretary, when they yes, finally do get to the bottom of it, if they ever do get to the bottom of it, knowing that the communist Chinese destroyed a bunch of the evidence, knowing that, if they do get to the bottom of it, and they do determine that it is the Wuhan Institute of Virology, will they apologize? Will this State Department apologize to the American people it disparaged? Congressman, the President has directed his team that we will share with Congress and the American people uh, what we learn. I'll just reiterate, there's not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I Thank yield. you. Congressman Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania, questioning the Assistant Secretary of State Daniel Crittenbrink at today's Foreign Affairs Committee hearing, looking at the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning Mao saying today at a briefing that China has shared the most data and research results on virus tracing and made important contributions to global virus tracing research. Politicizing the issue of virus tracing will not smear China, but only damage the U.S.'s own credibility. Another House hearing today, the Armed Services Committee looking at oversight of USAID to Ukraine. An article in Roll Call says Congress has approved more than $113 billion for Ukraine and support for supplying that aid has, has largely been broadened by partisan. But a small yet growing number of lawmakers on Capitol Hill are questioning how that aid is being overseen, just how long the U.S. can provide such massive amounts of aid and on the most extreme end of the spectrum, whether that aid should continue. One witness today, the Pentagon Inspector General Robert Storch, 
Hear a question by Congressman Andrew Clyde, Republican from Georgia. Accountability of the weapons shipped in is absolutely paramount, especially the most sensitive weapons, to ensure that they are being used for their intended purpose and not diverted for nefarious purpose. As a supply officer with both multiple peacetime deployments and multiple combat deployments in my 28 years of Navy service, I am fully aware of the challenges of maintaining visibility and control of critical military hardware and components when the supply lines are long and the theater is kinetic. So, Mr. Stork, I would like to start with you as the Department of Defense Inspector General. In all your inspections and oversight, uh, in country and, and out, have you found any instances of sensitive weapons like Stinger missiles being either lost or diverted uh, to those not authorized to have them? Thank you very much for the question. I'm obviously not uh, at liberty to talk about any investigations, but we have not substantiated any such instances, no, sir. So you can confidently say that, that to your knowledge, every sensitive weapon is currently under control of those who should have, it, who should have them. Thank you very much for the question. That's why we're engaged in a late, we're laser focused on this issue and engaged in robust oversight to make sure that's the case. We're doing audits and evaluations that look at the weapons from the time they begin at the port while they're transferred throughout um, as they get to the transshipment points and then they go into the country. And then as I mentioned in my statement, we're now conducting our third evaluation of the EUM and with regard to the sensitive assets, the EEUM, the enhanced monitoring, to ensure that the Department of Defense is conducting that monitoring in a robust way. Additionally, as I mentioned, we have the DCIS, the Defense Criminal Investigation Service. They have vast experience all over the world in doing investigations arising out of conflict situations. And so again, we're very much alert to any instances where that sort of conduct would occur. Okay, all right, moving on, as I understand it, your office is currently working on, among other things, an audit of DOD award and administration of non-competitively awarded contracts in support of Ukraine. Uh, has there been any waste, fraud, or abuse uncovered or reported to your office in these investigations? So I, I, want to, I appreciate the question. I want to be careful and not get out ahead of my skis because okay. the audit is ongoing. Okay. So we are looking at those issues in our audit and we'll report out on, on what we find. But the, the purpose of the audit is to ensure that the DOD has the controls in place to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. According to your testimony, you said that there were some uh, posters both in Ukrainian and English, the language, uh, sent out about um, a particular hotline that people could call. Um, if uh, they wanted to report something. So without compromising any identities, have any whistleblowers come forward with information uh, using that particular uh, method of uh, reporting to your knowledge? So thank, thank you for referencing the hotline. It's something we worked uh, closely on with our partners from State testimony. and USAID. And the goal is to provide an avenue for people to report what they think may be wrong. We have gotten all sorts of types of allegations over that, and we're you know, continuing to look at them. Pentagon Inspector General Robert Storch, questioned by Congressman Andrew Clyde, Republican from Georgia, at today's House Armed Services Committee hearing on oversight of military aid to Ukraine. Congressman Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, has been an outspoken critic of further aid to Ukraine. Today at the committee, he questioned another witness, Defense Undersecretary for Policy Colin Call, during which, as Daily Caller report, reports, he highlighted an article from the Global Times, a Chinese state-run outlet detailing U.S. financial assistance to the neo-Nazi 
Azov Battalion fighting on Ukraine's behalf, a violation of Congress's National Defense Authorization Act. Dr. Call, do we have uh, DOD personnel in Ukraine now? We do. We have a couple dozen at the embassy. Other than the embassy, any other personnel? Nope. How about CIA? Are there training folks in Ukraine? Uh, I'm not going to talk about that in in an unclassified setting. Happy to talk about that further in the classified briefing. Is the Azov Battalion getting access to U.S. weapons? Uh, Not that I'm aware of, um, but... If you have information, uh, I'd seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the Global Times investigative report that uh, indicate that talks about training. It's uh, from the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, uh, citing that the Azov Battalion was even getting stuff as far back as 2018. Without objection, so ordered. Any reason to disagree with that assessment, Doctor? Is this Paul? the? I'm sorry. Is this the Global Times from China? No, this is. Well, that's what you read. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, would that be a reason? Uh, I, I, as a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda. Well, no, no. Yeah, but just value. tell me if the if the allegation is true or false. I mean, uh, it, I don't have any evidence one way or the okay. other. As a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda at face value. Fair, fair enough. I would agree with that assessment. April twenty twenty two. President Biden is describing the supplemental funding that we're providing to Ukraine. He says, quote, it's also going to help schools and hospitals open. It's going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people so they have something, something in their pocket. So help me understand how U.S. taxpayers paying for pensions in Ukraine is, is a good idea for our country. Uh, I would defer you to other parts of our government. The Department of Defense doesn't have a role in in uh, pensions in Ukraine. You're a senior Biden administration official. The president said that it's really important that we keep funding the pensions in Ukraine. I would observe that the U.S. Census Bureau says that in 2022, the U.S. pension shortfall is $1.4 trillion. So while we have a corrupt Ukrainian government, while we have our watchdog here who can't say that we followed the law on in-use monitoring, we have the President of the United States saying we need to fund pensions in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the pensions of our fellow Americans are in greater jeopardy. Congressman Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, questioning Colin Call, Defense Undersecretary for Policy at today's House Armed Services Committee hearing. Associated Press reporting today that Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered officials to tighten control of the border with Ukraine after a spate of drone attacks that Russian authorities blamed on Kyiv delivered a new challenge to Moscow more than a year after its full-scale invasion of its neighbor. One drone crashed just 100 kilometers, 60 miles away from Moscow in an alarming development for Russian defenses. That from AP. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night. 